This podcast is brought to you by Pamela Mitchell, the author of a new book entitled The Ten Laws of Career Reinvention. Please listen to podcast number 746, where Pamela and Greg speak about what is required to reinvent yourself to be a better candidate for potential employers. Career reinvention is simple, but it's not easy. It requires you to focus on the vision of your future and be really clear about what it is you want. If you are in the middle of a personal career reinvention, then you will want to listen to podcast number 746, where Pamela Mitchell, the author of The 10 Laws of Career Reinvention, speaks about what you can do to better prepare for your next big transition. For more information about Pamela, please visit www.reinvention-institute.com. Thanks for listening. Welcome back to Inside Personal Growth. This is Greg Voice and the host of Inside Personal Growth. And Rita, as I do every time I come on these shows, there'd be no point in doing podcasts the last 12 and a half years if I didn't have all these listeners. So I thank my listeners every time for your great questions for your write-ins, reading my blogs, and listening to these great podcasts from authors from around the world. And Rita, you are joining us from where this morning? I am in New York City. New York City. So we have Rita McGrath on the line, and Rita has written a new book called Seeing Around Corners, How to Spot Inflection Points in Business Before They Happen. She's also the author of the bestseller, The End of competitive advantage. Well, good day to you, Rita. Um, I always like to let my listeners know a tad bit about the authors before we actually begin our interview. Rita is a best-selling author, a sought-after speaker, and a longtime professor at Columbia Business School. She's considered one of the world's top experts on innovation and growth. Her work regularly appears in the Harvard Business Review. Rita is consistently ranked the top 10 management thinkers in the world and ranked number one for strategy by Thinker50. And actually, that is, um, oh boy, why am I thinking of his name? Who started that? Uh, That would be Des Dearlove and Stuart Craner. Ah, okay. And then the most recent selling book is The Competitive Advantage, and she's got other books as well. And we're going to direct all of our listeners to her website, which is just RitaMcGrath.com. Yeah, very also, creative, isn't that? <laughs> yeah, very creative. You also have a business website or a consulting website. And how do you, it's Valise? Valise, yeah. Valise. It's called Valise. Valise. Yeah. So mm-hmm. nice French name, huh? <laughs> uh, sort of, yeah. <laughs> it sounds French anyway. Well, Rita, um, I think this whole concept of inflection points is really interesting. And, you know, you mentioned in the introduction that Andy Grove many years ago introduced the concept of strategic inflection points um, in his landmark book, Only the Paranoid Survive. Um, In your estimation, as somebody who teaches at a business school and is working with young people that are getting their MBAs and trying to work toward being in the business world. Why is the concept of these strategic inflection points so important uh, for business owners to wrap their heads around today? Well, I think one of the big impacts a strategic inflection point has is it changes the reality that you're dealing with. And so for business owners, you know, they build up their their assumptions about their business from their own experience 
And what an inflection point does is it makes that experience less relevant. So the gap between the world that you think you're dealing with and the world you're actually dealing with gets wider and wider. And that's why I think the inflection point theme is so important. It's not that people are, um, you know, not seeing some of the changes, but they've got these deeply embedded assumptions that inform their decisions. And the assumptions no longer work. So you need to really change them. Yeah, and it it's true. I mean, I don't think you can enter a think tank like uh, Greg and Mike have up at Solve Next and come in the room with a set of assumptions. And I think a lot of people do that, especially CEOs of companies. They think they know better and frequently they don't. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you tell a great story about the hearing aid business and, uh-huh. uh, to describe the importance of understanding inflection points. Can you tell that story to our listeners? I thought it was a pretty fascinating story and it's a great way to kind of set up inflection points because I wasn't aware of what's going on in the hearing aid business. Fortunately, I don't need one. Um, but you know, it it really was a good story to kind of uh, accentuate your point. Sure. So hearing aids years ago were an unregulated industry. And based on a lot of uh, fraudulent advertising and sort of snake oil salesmanship, the Food and Drug Administration imposed regulations on the industry. And that had two effects. One was to limit the numbers of people, of manufacturers that could create hearing aids. And the second was to basically make them super expensive. I mean, you can get them at at Costco for $1,500, but most people are looking at a bill of anywhere from $2,300 to, I think my mother spent $6,000 to get a pair of hearing aids, and they're not covered by health plans. So you've got this huge medical problem that is not actually being treated by health insurers or payers as a medical problem. So that's the first kind of overarching theme. The second theme is, as a consequence, one out of every five people who could benefit from a hearing aid actually have one. Um, So it's a huge demand market. So an analogy would be back in the day, you couldn't get eyeglasses without having to get a prescription and go to a doctor. And today, you you go to the drugstore and they've got readers and you can pick the ones that you like and you can tune them yourself. Um, Well, the prevailing model with hearing aids was always, oh, no, no, you had to go to a trained audiologist and have them specially programmed and so forth. So it's a huge unmet need. And it's actually something upon which both parties, uh, political parties in the United States could actually agree on that this is a problem and the solution to the problem would be to offer an over-the-counter alternative to the prescription-based hearing aid model we inherited. And so Republicans like it because, hey, anything that gets rid of regulation is great. And Democrats like it because, hey, you know, you're serving a bigger underserved population at lower cost, potentially. So the spark for the inflection point was the deregulation of hearing aids in the sense that the Food and Drug Administration said within two years, you have to offer an over-the-counter alternative. And so that just opens this up now to all kinds of players who could enter that market. And of course, you know, aside from the traditional hearing aid people, you've got people that don't. Now, mind you, underscore this, they do not make hearing aids, but they make what are called personal sound amplification devices. And that's everything from your Apple earpods 
to, you know, the Bose, they're called earphones, mm-hmm. to um, all kinds of players that are making these basically had, you know, earphones. That, that and they're making them at quite a bit less money than an actual set of hearing aids as oh, well. Yes. Oh, yeah. yes. Yes. Significant. And one of the problems with the hearing Why aids... Why are they differentiating behind, between uh, a hearing aid and calling it a hearing aid versus this other device which amplifies, which is what a hearing aid does as well? Well, I mean, right. Is, because it, is a hearing... it because of Congress and the regulations and the and the laws, or what? What is behind all that? Yeah. Well, so if you want to call yourself a hearing aid, you have to go through the FDA approval process. Okay. If you're just okay. a headphone, you don't. Right. Okay. So that saves millions of dollars in the process. And absolutely. Right. So the opportunity and the inflection point is that now, you know, you could think of thousands of players that could offer something that helps people with their hearing, but at a much reduced price and much reduced complexity. And I mean, I remember when my mother went and got hearing aids, you know, you had to go multiple times, you had to get them fitted, you had to get them tuned, and they were really expensive. And she unfortunately passed away some time ago, and they're useless now. You can't give them to anyone else. So it's an asset that you've spent a ton of money creating without any future benefit to anyone. Yeah, it is a shame that uh, Medicare has not added that benefit to the policies for seniors. uh, Because I do know that it's a huge thing. And obviously, who knows, maybe here in the future, if Congress can ever get their act together, uh, maybe we'll see some (laughs) legislation that way. Well, Um, and I would also add that Losing your hearing is associated with a raft of other problems. Um, mm-hmm. People fall more frequently. People right. become socially isolated. There's much less tendency to be living independently if you can't hear. Uh, you're more likely to get into traffic accidents. I mean, the thing I think that is short-sighted on the part of policymakers who decide what we pay for in our health system is that there's all these other things that lack of hearing contributes to that they do pay for. <laughs> so if you dealt with the lack of hearing, you could save a lot of money on all these other issues. Yeah, it's a it's kind of a slippery slope, as you say. I think a, a lot of things change to people that have, once the hearing starts to go. Mm-hmm. Um, the other thing I was speaking with some gentlemen about was just measuring older people's gait, right, for mm-hmm. seniors, because that's mm-hmm. how they fall. Um, and so now these cell phones with the accelerometers, we have the ability to send that data to uh, physical therapists mm. who can see if the gate actually has changed. So the technology with these devices is moving forward. And, you know, you cite in your book, and, and I think this is a big part of the book or one of the bigger parts, these four basic stages in the development of inflection points. Mm-hmm. Um, can you, for our listeners, let's talk about those four stages because those are the kind of the things that lead to someone identifying the inflection point. You, even you say, I like how you laid the book out. You know, you said, well, here's what's going to happen in chapter one and chapter two and chapter three. I think this is an important point for the listeners to get. Mm-hmm. Sure. So, um, so an inflection point usually starts where nobody's paying attention, right? So they're, right. they're early weak signals and, yeah, now people don't really focus on it. Then once it passes a kind of a critical tipping point, then it enters into what, what the, the Gartner people would call the hype cycle. You know, everybody's now paying attention to it. And, oh, my God, we've got to invest in this or the world is going to end and da 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 And something like autonomous vehicles, I would say, is in that moment right now where 
you know, everybody's investing billions. It's all going to be autonomous. We're all going to you know, be able to sleep and snooze and look at our phones and whatnot while this autonomous car picks us up. And then there's this sort of moment of reality. We'll say, well, actually, we need a whole ecosystem. We need laws. We need regulations. We need to understand how to ensure these things. So you have this sort of crash of confidence. And then a lot of people at that moment basically say, oh, well, see, I told you this is never going to happen. This is never going to be reality. And yet there'll be a few survivors from the hype portion, and they actually go and build real business models around this. And then the ecosystem starts to coalesce. You start to have it being something that becomes real in people's minds. And eventually then it becomes taken for granted. Um, and so I think it's very interesting that at these early stages, um, there's a real tendency and a real temptation to just ignore the thing, you know, dismiss it, ignore it. It's never going to happen. Never, if it, even if it does happen, it's never going to affect us. You, know, you have a lot of that going on at those stages. Yeah. And, and you know, I, you speak about that, and I wrote a book called Hacking a Gap, A Journey from Intuition to Innovation and Beyond. Mm -hmm. And really, this is this innovation uh, cycle. You, you actually talk about aha moments in your book. Mm -hmm. But in, in early in the book, you state if ever there was an inflection point worth anticipating, it surely be in the change of business assumptions spawned by the dominance of social media platforms. Mm -hmm. What have social media platforms done to accelerate the rate not only of inflection points, but innovation, all the things that we're seeing today. Obviously, we could you you cite all kinds of great stories in the book, and we're going to get to a few more of those stories uh, about Microsoft and Procter and Gamble. But the reality is, what is it that we need to understand about these social media platforms and their ability to accelerate our opportunities to see these inflection points in certain areas? Well, if you think about it, um, in, in, say, 1970, um, if you wanted to get a message to a million people or more, you had to pay hundreds of millions of dollars of advertising. You had to own a TV studio. You had to have you know, a slot in an advertisement on a, on a regular channel. Um, and if you fast forward to today, if you want to get a message to 2 billion people, all you have to do is have a compelling Facebook post. <laughs> you know, conceivably. I mean, I'm saying that's how big the reach of that company is. So what social media has done has dramatically shifted the assumptions we make about how expensive it is to get a message or get some content out there. And once you have that happening, uh, now a little competitor from the middle of nowhere can suddenly be as formidable as a Procter & Gamble Gillette. You know, I mean, that, that's a, a very interesting phenomenon, which is that the ability to communicate, to draw an audience, to be an influencer has become much more democratized almost. And that has, you know, good good things and bad things about it. But the reality is you, you can now actually reach out and communicate to far more people than you'd ever have been able to before. Well, plus I think it's also a pool of like-minded people can get together and innovate as well, right? So mm -hmm. it's like you're looking for channels and lines and you're looking for opportunities and it actually makes it easier to find those by collecting data, right? Mm -hmm. So all mm -hmm. these data sets too help people to do that. Um, you know, in your book, 
you talk about being present at the edges. You say snow mm -hmm. melts from the edges. You right. speak about eight principles that can help a business make sure there isn't something brewing at the periphery of their organization. Mm -hmm. um, and, and I think this is where we're blindsided many times. Um, mm -hmm. And you actually talk about in the books, these blindsided things, which we'll get to the Procter & Gamble one, the Microsoft mm -hmm. one. Can you mention the eight principles briefly and how they could help businesses become more aware of the potential explosive impacts to their business sure. in particular? Oh, absolutely. So the first is, are you as a leader personally present where these things are starting to happen? So, um, you know, and the, the reality is, is the higher you get, the more senior you are in an organization, the harder it is to get unvarnished information. Um, and so I think, you know, the example that, that I often use is uh, The Gap many years, well, about in 2015, wanted to give its retail workers more predictable hours. And they really, really struggled with it. It was very, very hard. And so uh, this New York Times reporter wanted to know, well, why is it so hard? <laughs> and, um, and one of the things the store manager said was, well, you know, we have these executive visits and I've had everybody here on double overtime getting ready for this executive visit, right? <laughs> so, so it's direct contact with the edges because if you're that executive, you're doing the right thing, you're going to the store, you're trying to see what's going on with your customers, and yet the store manager has you know, replaced all the light bulbs and given the place a nice new lick of paint and, you know, they've done all these things to make it look beautiful which is all great, but that's not the reality that your average customer is encountering. So the first principle is, do I have mechanisms to come in direct contact with the edges? Um, the next principle is getting diverse perspectives to weigh in on a problem. And I don't mean diversity in the political, politically correct sense. I just mean people with a wider range of exposure to what's going on in the world. And if you, you know, if you think about it, if you're making a decision and you're all from the same place, you've all had the same education, you've all had the same, you know, blah, 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 whatever it is, uh, you know, you're very likely to overlook something that someone from a different place or with a different set of experiences might encounter. So it's that notion of diverse perspectives when you're making a decision. Uh -huh. um, the third principle is trusting and empowering small agile teams, which are, you know, if I've given them the context, you know, then they can take action without my having to assign them tasks or look things up or whatever. So, you know, small, agile teams. And as Jeff Bezos from Amazon would say, you know, we want those teams to be small because we don't want any team that can't easily be fed on two pizzas. <laughs> That's the two pizza rule. Then um, mechanisms. <laughs> I like two that. pizzas, right? Yeah. yeah, isn't that great? Then um, little bets. You know, can I can I give people the resources and the opportunity to engage in little bits? You know, try try things out, do some experimentation. And my favorite example there is Adobe's Kickbox, which is literally a red box that contains instructions and a notepad and a place to put bad ideas and some chocolate and a Starbucks card. But the most important thing about it is it's a thousand dollar gift card, which people that get this kickbox anywhere in the organization can use to do an experiment. So it's just absolutely um, you know, fascinating. And people can work on their own idea. You know, it's not the boss's idea. It's not somebody else's idea. It's their own idea. And they can spend this $1,000 to kind of test it out. 
Then um, getting out of the building. This is something my colleague Steve Blank talks about a lot, which is, you know, it's very easy to get wrapped up in your email and the meetings and the crisis of the day and, oh, my God, I'm so busy. And, and as Steve says, there are no answers in the building. You need to get out. And so do I regularly get out of the building to see what's really going on? Then we have the incentive challenge, which is, you know, is it okay in my organization to say, hey, there's a problem, hey, there's some data that we need to be paying attention to, hey, this is different, or is it something where, oh my God, you know, the boss wouldn't like it, or I feel worried, or I feel nervous about my career. So you, you have the incentive problem around hearing uncomfortable news. Then we have denial, right? And I see this a lot in my established company colleagues. They're just in denial. There's an issue or a problem. So am I making sure I'm not in denial? And then the last thing, the eighth thing, is, you know, as William Gibson, who's a science fiction writer, once said, um, he said, you know, the future is already here. It's just not evenly distributed yet. So the question here is, do you go to where the future is starting to make itself felt? So, you know, do you go to industry conferences from a place that's not yours? Do you talk to younger people? Do you have places you can go to where, you know, the future kind of is already showing itself? It just doesn't mm -hmm. isn't mainstream yet. Mm -hmm. That's a really great statement. The future is already here. It's just not equally distributed. And I, I would say that is true. The more of the conferences I attend uh, where they're pushing the envelope or they're thinking outside of the box or they're doing any of these things to test uh, our current assumptions, per se, mm -hmm. uh, is, a, is a way to keep yourself available, open uh, to new ideas and to spawn your own. Mm -hmm. And in your chapter on early warnings, you mentioned that an inflection point occurs um, when a change that some people call a 10x change, because we hear that a lot, mm -hmm. upends the basic assumptions that a business model is built on. Mm -hmm. What are some of the changes that can occur after this? Because obviously that's an aha moment for people, mm -hmm. right? But you actually say, hey, it's really what you do with that, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. um, so what are what are some of those changes that, that you've seen? And then we're going to go to the Microsoft story next, which I think is fascinating. Mm -hmm. Some of the changes I've seen? Yes, I mean... You, you talk about the 10x assumptions that it, it really upsets a business model that somebody mm -hmm. has, right? Mm -hmm. So so why don't we use that Microsoft story? So you tell a great story about Microsoft that accentuates the point. Um, and could you tell that story? Because actually, I knew Microsoft lost its edge in many areas, and obviously it did. But you actually pointed out all the areas where Microsoft did lose mm -hmm. um, its edge, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, look, Bill Gates was the fair-haired boy for a long time. Mm -hmm. So what are those, you you pointed to Google, you pointed to all these other things where they lost market share. And those are the things that, I, that I'd like you to talk to the listeners about. Well, Microsoft missed many of the big inflection points that were going to be instrumental to how people you know, work and communicate in their business, right? Um, so they missed the mobile revolution. They tried they tried many times and failed to get into mobile phones. They missed the cloud. They missed, you know, internet. They missed software as a service and so forth and so forth. And so I think one of the things that Satya Nadella did when he came into the company is he said, look, we, you know, we've been focused far too much on lagging indicators. 
that what we need to be focusing on are leading indicators. And for our new cloud-based businesses, the leading indicators are all about usage. And what causes usage? Well, you know, customers only use our products if they enjoy them. And so, you know, what we need to be thinking about is how do we get customers to love our products? You know, how do we get customers to feel that they want to spend time with us? So he's really redirected the company from this focus on profits and margins and that kind of thing to a focus on what generates customer love. And it's a real redirection uh, for the company. Yeah, it is. And, and they've had some successes and quite a few failures in the process of trying to figure that out. Um, and I'm not, I'm not saying it's too late for them. I'm just saying you have a huge company trying to turn around mm -hmm. uh, its focus and it's very evident um, and it's evident to the consumers as well. I mean, you look at the surface, that's one opportunity that they saw to get into that market. Mm -hmm. um, you look at the software that uh, is so, I would say, hasn't had any recent huge innovations in it. Mm -hmm. um, so they're really trying hard, but I don't see where there has been huge successes in that yet. But I, I think we will see some. Mm -hmm. um, I think we will too. Yep. And so you make an interesting comment in the book that is a failure, that it's a failure of imagination that so often leads to strategic surprise. Mm -hmm. Would you just for me kind of comment on that? Because I go back to the days of, believe it or not, I'm old enough to have met Walt Disney. And all oh, I ever wow. talked about was was um, imagination. Mm -hmm. I was actually an eight-year-old little boy in an elevator in Palm Springs. And I actually got to shake his hand. And it was like the most exciting thing that ever happened to me. That is but, exciting. Uh, <laughs> yeah, exactly. But he was the master of imagination. Mm -hmm. Um and how is it that we have so many people that have lost sight of, and I, I, I pardon the pun, lost sight of finding this imagination or actually mm -hmm. working with their imagination? Mm -hmm. what, what would you comment about that? Well, I think Walt Disney was one of the first people to recognize that innovation is social and that the reactions of other people to our ideas is often what determines whether we prove, you know, whether we move forward with it or whether we sort of say, oh, well, that was just stupid and give up on it. And one of my favorite things that he did with all of his people, he said, look, I don't want anybody in my organization saying, yes, but, you know, like, yes, oh, yeah, I hear you, but this is wrong and that's wrong and this won't work and that's why. So he was- You mean champion. other than Roy, his brother, who used to- <laughs> <laughs> well, but he used to, um, he, he, he tried to get people to think about yes and. Yeah. So yes and let me build on your idea. So yeah. I think one of the very practical things he did was really get this culture of I hear your idea, I think it's interesting, let me build on it, rather than I hear your idea but it's stupid and it's crazy and there's no way this is going to work. Right. Yeah, no, he did a he did an excellent job of of doing that. And he, as you've read anything about him, his one of his biggest struggles was his brother always worried about the budget that they were gonna uh -huh. they weren't gonna have enough money. Mm -hmm. um, and one of the great stories ever told was he was building a ride at Disneyland, and he it, and Walt Disney went in and said, "Hey, we have to make fireflies in there, and we have to make it smell like the Bayou, and we've got to do all this." And he says, "I need more money to do that." And Roy said, "No," and he said. No, we have to make it so that people can imagine that that's where they are mm -hmm. um, when they're in that ride, right? 
And um, as a kid, having ridden that, you know, it's like when you take in the smell and you take in the fireflies and you take that all in, you really get that sense of actually being there uh, Mm -hmm. in the bayou. So you, in your chapter entitled On the Outlook uh, for Weak Signals, Defining Mm -hmm. Your Arena, you speak about Procter & Gamble's Gillette brand Mm -hmm. and the change in the razor business due to this negative inflection point. And we've seen a lot of changes in the razor business, believe me, um, including guys that are marketing razors for a dollar online. If you would speak with us about this negative inflection point and and what happened with Procter & Gamble and what you saw in this razor business. I I thought it was a great story. Mm. So one of the big shifts that has happened that I think it represents a major inflection point. This is across multiple industries, not just razors. Um, is this direct-to-consumer model that's being created by, indeed, Dollar Shave Club, by Wayfair, by Bonobos, by you know all these firms? Harry's. Saying, hey, Harry's. Yes. You know, we don't need we don't need retailers. We can go direct to consumers, and we don't need people to buy our products. They can just subscribe. So. They're actually becoming members of our ecosystem. And I think that's been a just seismic change for many, many companies. Because if you think about it, the Procter & Gamble model was we invest in R&D. That gives us better products. Therefore, we can charge more money for them. Then we can distribute them through our armies of salespeople to retail outlets. And we underpin the whole thing by you know, millions, if not billions of dollars of advertising. And what Dollar Shave Club and Harry's and Warby Parker and all these other firms have done is say, why do you need all that? You can just go direct to consumers. We can meet them where they live on Instagram or Facebook or wherever. We can sell directly to them because we don't need all this expensive retail infrastructure. And it's a completely different model. Now, if you're an executive in Procter & Gamble, you know, you're – you're preoccupied with things like, well, is Schick going to introduce the next six-bladed razor? And here I am creating five-bladed razors and stuff like that. You're just not even paying attention. And I think that's one of the really interesting blind spots that people in established, successful companies have, which is that, you know, I've got this formula and it works and it's worked for decades. And all of a sudden somebody comes along and says, you know, no, I don't need your formula. I've got something different. Yeah. And I agree with you. I mean, I've seen so many of these. We all have, obviously. If you're awake and aware, you're seeing what's going on in the marketplaces today and what is often termed as disruption, right? Everything's about how are you going to disrupt? Um, I think I hear that word more than I like. But what would you want to tell our listeners about not just inflection points, but how to read the inflection points? probably pre the inflection point Mm -hmm. so that they could redirect their business or their innovation um, so that they could reinvent themselves and possibly be on the front side of it versus being on the back side of it. Mm. Well, I think the most important thing to make people aware of is what are the assumptions that guide your day-to-day decision-making. And I think one of the most interesting new ideas that's come out since the book was published is, you know, we used to think of innovation as being the place where we've got high uncertainty and we have to make a lot of assumptions and we need to be really aware of them. What I'm seeing in many sectors of our economy is your core business is now in that same mode where, you know, 
all the assumptions underlying it are being thrown up in the air and reconsidered. And I think Gillette Procter & Gamble is a great example of this, which is we assume we need retail networks. We assume we need advertising. We assume we need you know, massive investment in R&D. And what the upstarts in that industry have really demonstrated is, well, no, actually, those are incorrect assumptions. And so I think the big moment is to really think through, well, what are the assumptions I'm not even thinking about that I might need to question? And that's what they need to be doing. Absolutely. Right? Yeah, mm -hmm. yeah, yep. definitely. Well, Rita, it's been a pleasure having you on Inside Personal Growth and sharing some of your knowledge and wisdom about this. And I'm going to obviously have a blog entry on this for my listeners. But if you want to learn more about Rita's books and her workshops and the things that she's doing in the press, uh, go to Rita McGrath. That's M-C-G-R-A-T-H dot com. Um, the, some of her books are Seeing Around Corners, The End of Competitive Advantage, Discovery Driven Growth, uh, Market Busters, and The Entrepreneurial Mindset. Um, so you can learn more about her, her books there. Rita, it's been a pleasure having you on Inside Personal Growth. I really enjoyed this, and I know my listeners will get a lot out of this because it's an opportunity for them to not only get your book and read it, but also to understand inflection points and how they're working in their business. Thanks for being on Inside Personal Growth. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure.